98,000 people die every year in U.S. hospitals from errors, and 65 out of 1,000 people suffer injury or illness as a consequence of treatment. What causes these alarming statistics, and what can be done about it? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Stephen Spear, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a Senior Lecturer at MIT, and the author of the book, Chasing the Rabbit. Dr. Spear, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you for having me. Explain what does cause these alarming statistics. It's an excellent question because it, it's really quite depressing statistics. Because if you, if you think about healthcare, on the one hand, you've got this industry where the science itself is fantastic. And living in 2007, we have this opportunity to diagnose and treat diseases and other ailments, which even a generation ago, people just had written off as incurable. And if you look at the people who work in healthcare, to a person, they're hardworking, well-trained, well-educated intelligent, self-sacrificing, and so forth. And so if you just took that combination of people, great people using great science, you would say the potential of the industry is just really extraordinary. Yet the performance of the industry is really not even unextraordinary. That sounds boring, but it's quite depressing and dismal sometimes with rates of injury and avoidable death like you just described. And then there's the other stuff which we pile on cost of care, lack of access to care, and so forth. And so you ask the question, well, if the science is so good and the people are so great, what's the cause of this? And really the, the root cause is how the delivery of care is managed. And, and what I mean by that is that we have an industry, or sector of the economy, I guess it sounds less finance-driven when you say it that way, but we have a sector of the economy upon which we all depend. And it's organized and managed in ways which are really quite antiquated. So if, what I mean by this is if you go into a typical hospital today, and say, I'm looking for the person in charge of hip replacement. My mother, my grandmother's taken a fall and she needs to have her hip fixed or she has, has some arthritis and we need to do one of these miraculous uh, hip replacements. You say, well, who's in charge of hip replacements? And they'll say, well, you know, we've got really the best orthopedic surgeons. They say, well, that's great. And I'm really concerned that she has a great surgeon, but you know, I imagine that hip replacements involve more than surgeons as the aspect of anesthesia and rehabilitation and physical therapy. He said, oh, well, here's the anesthesiologist. He's a great anesthesiologist. Said, yeah, but who's responsible for hip replacement? Everything from the initial diagnosis, workup, pre-surgical prep, surgery, post-surgical recuperation, all that. And they'll say, oh, well, here's the, the therapist and, and the rehabilitative specialist. Say, oh, that's great, but who's in charge of hip replacement? And, and you can push this all day. And in most cases, in most cases, with the rare exception of the specialty hospitals, and that's worth talking about, in most cases you'll find no one who's responsible for hip replacement or knee replacement and fixing of ankles and treatment of breast cancer and so forth. Now, the reason that's a, why that exists and why it's a problem it has its historical uh, antecedents. So if you go back to um, the 50s and the 60s and ask what medicine was really capable of accomplishing? The answer is it was capable of accomplishing very little by the standards we have today. So the example I use is if you think of a woman who gets the diagnosis of breast cancer in 1955, for most women it's a horrible diagnosis because for most of them there's actually nothing that can be done. But then there's the handful where the disease has been caught early enough and in, in such a location. And then the, the treatment is fairly straightforward because everyone gets the same treatment, which is a radical mastectomy. 
then you say, well, what's involved in a radical mastectomy? Well, in the hospitals that are performing that procedure, there's a, a small group of surgeons in the surgical team which perform that procedure and a small group of nurses who help patients recover after the surgery. And the science at the time is not very well advanced. So you've got the surgical teams working on the surgery and the nurses afterwards working on the, the post-operative nursing to push the boundaries of that. And as far as pulling those two pieces together, the people are doing very similar work day in, day out. They're working together with the same people. So the range of what they're doing is fairly narrow. The variety of people they're working with is also fairly narrow. It's the same people all the time. So the, this issue of integrating piece one and piece two, the surgery and the post-surgical care, well, that they can figure out because they've got ample opportunity to practice a narrow set of integrative challenges with the same people day in, day out. Now, you fast forward 50 years. Now, if a woman gets a diagnosis of breast cancer today, it's certainly not a good news, but it's much, much better news than in 1955 because over the last four or five decades, the medical community, the scientific community's understanding of that breast cancer disease has actually expanded so much that breast cancer is not even one disease. It's dozens and dozens of diseases, all of which have its own physical manifestation, all of which have its own genetic abnormality, all of which have its own environmental triggers and so on and so on. And because of that, because of there's so many diseases which manifest themselves as breast cancer but which have all these different causes, there are all these different treatment plans which are available. So today a woman comes into a hospital and uh, she's there because she has breast cancer, but they say, well, now we may do surgery, but it's unlikely that for every patient we're going to do is a radical mastectomy. We may do partial mastectomy. We may do lumpectomy and so forth. We also may do that in combination with chemotherapy. And you say, well, when's the chemotherapy going to happen? Well, it may happen before or after the surgery, maybe some before and some after. It may be done in concert with some type of radiation therapy also, which has several different types. It may be done before or after the surgery. But all of a sudden you have these treatments which aren't simple anymore. There's this huge range of treatments, and each treatment itself has so many different steps. And depending on the patient, the steps may come in and out of many different orders. So now, all of a sudden, it's no longer an issue of you do your work and become a master of it, and I do my work and I become a master of it, and the integration of the two pieces, well, we'll figure that as we go. You and I may not work in the same sequence, in the same treatment plan ever again. And so now we're in a situation where managing the process, the start to finish, is no longer the the trivial after-the-thought problem it used to be. Now it really dominates the success of the treatment or not. The big problem is most healthcare organizations, when you go in and ask how they're organized, it's still around function and discipline, but it's not about the start-to-finish process. And, And when you look at what happens in terms of patients getting injured and killed and costs being high and access being denied, it's very hard to point a finger and pin it down on a failure by a person within a function. Normally what happens is it's the failure of a process to let people perform their function well. Or, or said differently, and I'll stop with this, it's not so much that it's incompetent people, but it's processes and systems that force very competent people to look incompetent. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Stephen Spear from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement discussing healthcare reform. Dr. Spear, how do healthcare providers prevent being too compartmentalized? It's a very challenging question. There's very compelling reasons why healthcare organizations, particularly the academic medical centers and the teaching hospitals, organize as they are. And the largest is 
that they have these three missions. One is treating patients. The second is training residents. And the third is advancing science. And the thing is, the treating patients is very much dependent on excellent process. Just as we were discussing, this whole issue of the success, whether it's an orthopedic procedure like a hip replacement or it's a process meant to treat cancer like dealing with breast cancer and and getting the right coordination of radiation therapy and chemotherapy and surgical therapy and rehabilitative therapy and so forth. Treating patients is very, very much a process issue. But if you think about the training of residents as opposed to treating patients, residents don't get trained and certified and boarded in process. They get trained and and boarded and certified within disciplines. So there's this pressure within particularly academic medical centers to organize around disciplines because that's how people get promoted and advanced. You go to college as a pre-med, you go into medical school. By your third, fourth year, you're starting to pick electives within your clinical rotations. You apply into residencies, and then your residency, you're going internship, your one, two, three, four, whatever it happens to be, fellowship within a discipline. So there's this pressure to organize around disciplines and create people who are chairs and chiefs of disciplines, radiology, oncology, radiation, oncology, and so forth, because that's how people get certified to actually practice medicine. So of the three missions, one is process-driven, which is treating patients. One is discipline-driven, which is training residents. And then the third one is research. And also the research funding is driven not along process, but also into the science. And the science is typically compartmentalized within the discipline. So to get these large hospitals to think in terms of process is very difficult. But again, not because they're stupid or or have bad intentions. It's for very good reasons that they're trying to pursue three objectives, two of which align about, about function and discipline and one of which aligns around process. And again, there's this other issue, which is healthcare as a, a sector of the economy has succeeded for a very, very long time by being oriented around discipline. And it's only within the last generation where process, because of the advancement of science and the complexity of the process, where process is really a serious concern anyway. So this is not easy, but I don't think we should be disparaging of the people really in the thick of these things uh, when we we see that they struggle with process. There's not a history of worrying about process. They're not trained in process. And there are these competing objectives and concerns which divert their attention from process. What's your best advice? We'll call it Healthcare Reform 101. Healthcare is one of these funny things. It's exceptionally frustrating precisely because it should be so good, and yet it offers such disappointment. And so when I kick back and think about sectors of the economy which delight as opposed to disappoint, they have certain characteristics. So one of the characteristics in sectors which delight us are as a payer, as a consumer, we can go into whatever it is we're looking to purchase. And one, there's a variety of things from which we can select. And the second is there's easily accessible information as to what's good and what's bad in that sector. So, for example, if you go to buy a car, and again, I don't want to compare the purchase decision around a car with that of treating breast cancer, for example. Um, But if you go to buy a car, you can pick up Consumer Reports, Road and Track Magazine, Car and Driver, and so forth. And there's ample opportunity as a consumer to say, oh, experts determine that this one is better, A is better than B, B is better than C, and now I can make a choice based on price as to whether I'm going to buy A, B, or C. All right, now one could actually think in terms of preventative care and primary care 
that it might be more transaction-based. We don't have to get into the slippery slope about very cutting-edge, high-end treatments, you know, for uh, chronic and acute conditions. All right, so that's one aspect, one characteristic of high-performing sectors in our economy is this issue to compare and contrast across performance and price. The second, of course, is that you have the ability to make choice based on that information. Dr. Spear, thank you for joining us to discuss health care reform. Oh, you're quite welcome. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you and your listeners. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD library. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Armand Antmaria with the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And you are listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.